If you go to the website, centennialbulb.org, then you can see what's known as a bulb cam. And this bulb cam does exactly what it says it does. It's a camera aimed at, at a single light bulb. And every 30 seconds, this camera takes a picture of the light bulb and it uploads it to the internet. And when I went to centennialbulb.org and I went onto the bulb cam bit, the scene there is of your, your, you're like at the top of a room and you're looking at a camera, uh, so you're looking at a bulb and it's on and there in the background you can see a fire engine, a fire truck and that's it. And I think if you went back there, you know, next week, next month, next year, you would see pretty much the same scene every single time. So it's not tremendously exciting. And so the question which we have is, why is there a website which is for this one light bulb? Why is there a camera trained on this one light bulb 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year? Here's the reason. Because this light bulb has been shining for 117 years. So, if you think that you're saving energy and, you know, you're, you're not having to change light bulbs as much, you use LED bulbs, well this one out, has outshone and outlasted any of the LED light bulbs on the market. And so in 2015, Fire Station 6 in Livermore, California, where, where the light bulb is, celebrated their one millionth hour of lightedness with a bit of a party. That's one million hours in 2015 and counting from one light bulb. And that light bulb has never gone off uh, with the exception of maybe a power outage and then they've had to, had to get it back on again. And so for me... Knowing that this bulb has lasted for 117 years, it raises a really important question. Why don't all light bulbs last for 117 years? Why is it that we regularly have to make our way down to home hardware or Walmart or the dollar store in order to pick up our new light bulbs? Why are we not literally enjoying the same light that our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents enjoyed? And the answer to that is something called planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence, according to Wikipedia, is the practice of creating um, a product with an artificially limited useful life, which means it will become obsolete, either um, unfashionable or no longer functional after a certain period of time. In short, things are created in order to break down. Here are some other examples of planned obsolescence, uh, where planned obsolescence has been incorporate, uh, incorporated into the way that they are created. Maybe college textbooks, you know? So they're good, and even though the information hasn't changed a lot, you have to buy the latest one. Uh, ink, um, our ink cartridges, they have planned ob ob obsolescence. Uh, you know, you, if you, if you buy those ones from the store, you aren't able to reuse them. Uh, video games have planned obsolescence built into them. MP3 players have planned obsolescence, uh, also built into them. 
And any time that you've had something break down or fail just after the warranty has expired, that might just be your unfortunate luck, or it might be planned obsolescence. And so generally, planned obsolescence gets me mad uh, because of, because the continued profit of these companies uh, means that we have to continually buy their products. And so we play their game and they bring out a new product and we buy it. And maybe you're thinking, but I don't play that game, you know, that game of planned obsolescence. Well, how many of us are still using the original iPod that was created in 2001? Not many of us. Maybe you're thinking, what is that? Well, uh, I'll try to find something that's tailor-made to you next time. So when the company brings out a new product, we comply, but inwardly we get frustrated and we grind our teeth uh, because of this idea of planned obsolescence and this game that these big companies have us playing. But my question for us today is, what if all planned obsolescence isn't bad? What if in some cases it's in our favour for something to become obsolete? Let's turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 21. And as you're turning there, I'll uh, pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and Lord, I pray that you would that you would speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 2, verse 21 says this. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will, will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined, nor they pour new wine into new wineskins. So in our language now, we might say something like, you can't charge a brand new iPhone 10 using an old school 30-pin charging cable. You can only charge a new iPhone 10 using a lightning wire. That's sort of what Jesus is saying here. And so what Jesus is saying, that with him on the scene, things have changed forever. There has been an upgrade, a major upgrade. He's saying that he hasn't come here to patch up the old system. He's come to bring in a whole new way of living life. Now, so far in, in Mark's account, the, the law teachers, the, the teachers of the law, have seen Jesus prove that he can forgive sins. Uh, they've seen him prove that over and over again he can heal anything that comes his way. They've seen him preach with authority, which is such a change from the way that they preach the scripture. Um, this, this was someone, Jesus was someone to whom people flocked. People literally weren't able to stay away from him. They were drawn to him. This man, Jesus Christ, made everyone sit up and take notice. But in these verses, what Jesus is saying is that he's more than just a flash in the pan. He's more than just a fad or a craze. This isn't fidget spinners or the floss dance. This is someone who's ushering in a whole new era. This is someone who's introducing a new way to be human. Things are changing forever. That's what these verses are about. This is why he said you don't sew a new patch of cloth onto an old garment. If you do that, they're both ruined. So what do you do instead? You buy a new garment, and Jesus is the new garment 
You see, folks have been wearing the robes of the ceremonial law for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Jesus is saying that it's a new season and that there's something new for them to wear. Um, yeah, the Jewish faith had been pointing towards Jesus for centuries. The sacrifices and the law and the rules all said that people were sinners and that they were in need of a saviour. But now that saviour had arrived on the scene and so it was time to stop looking at the old signs that pointed towards the saviour and instead start looking at the saviour himself. But people being people, what they wanted was to have the option to sew a new patch onto an old garment. They wanted to keep the old wineskins to fill them with this new wine. They, they wanted to keep the fundamentals of the old and slap a bit of the new um, maybe onto it. They wanted to buy their new iPhone, but they wanted to keep their old iPhone charger cable. They wanted to play their CDs or MP3s on an 8-track player. They wanted Jesus plus the other stuff. They wanted to keep their old life with Jesus uh, thrown in, maybe as an extra. But these, but this would never happen because they weren't compatible. Now, there's this guy called Warren Wearsby, and he says this: there are two ways for you to destroy a thing. You can either smash it, or you can let it fulfill itself. So he uses the example of an acorn. He says you can either smash it with a hammer or you can allow it to grow into an oak. And in both cases, the, 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 the ruin or the destruction of the acorn is full. It's complete. But in the second instance, the acorn is destroyed by being fulfilled. And so that's the point that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, Jesus says this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them in the same way. This is not scripture, this is me adding it. I've come to, to fulfill them in the same way that an oak tree fulfills an acorn. So what does that mean for us today? This means that Jesus who is the God-man, who came to, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, brought in a new era. An era in which we sinful beings can walk up to God freely and absolutely through faith in him. Unhindered access. But he didn't ruin the old ways with a hammer. Instead, he ruined them, he destroyed them by fulfilling them in himself, in his person, but we want Jesus plus. We want Jesus plus our good works. We want Jesus plus the old law. We want Jesus plus our best efforts. We want Jesus plus our own religiosity. We want Jesus plus our new age faith. We want Jesus plus Hinduism. We want Jesus plus. We want to mix Jesus in with our own worldview. And Jesus is saying to us through this scripture, no, it's just me. When you, when you try to supplement me with something else, you're trying to pour new wine into brittle old wineskins. And the only thing that you will get from that venture is a big stain on your couch. 
So so what Jesus is saying is when you try to add me as an optional add-on or a module in your life that you're trying to sew a patch, a new patch onto old clothes, they are, they, this won't work and you will end up with an embarrassing rip which is worse than it was maybe at the beginning. He's saying that the old way of doing things is now obsolete. And it was planned that way. This is supernatural planned obsolescence. The acorn has been destroyed by becoming an oak tree and it is beautiful. So let's look at maybe two ways in which we can see this new age that Jesus is bringing in. First, we'll look at fasting and secondly, we'll look at the Sabbath. So, so let's, let's turn to Mark chapter 2 verse 18. Mark chapter 2 verse 18 and we'll just read through to verse 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John, that John's disciples and the, uh, and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. The disciples of both the Pharisees and John are fasting, and people know that Jesus' disciples are not, and they wonder why. And Jesus' answer is pretty simple. They say, uh, people don't fast when you're at a wedding. What he's saying is, this is how things were before me, but now that I'm here... Me as the bridegroom, things have changed. Yesterday I was at a wedding, and this wedding showed me that it's a time for rejoicing. You know, it's a time for happiness, it's a time of hope, it's a time of thinking about the future. It's not a time when you're sat there with your stomach rumbling, thinking, woe is me. And it's likely that when Jesus was asked this question, that he was still at that party at Levi's house, which we read in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. It's likely he was still there. And so, you know, so there's this party going on. And then in the midst of this party, these frowny-faced religious types walk in, presumably not invited, and they complain to Jesus that, First of all, you shouldn't be here mixing with these sinful people. And secondly, you should be fasting, going without food at this very moment in the middle of the party. Because, I don't know, because it's fasting season. And so I can see Jesus laughing off this rude interruption with a sparkle in his eye. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They 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 aren't able to as long as he is with them. What he's pretty much saying is, are you listening to yourselves? Do you realize how silly you sound? And here's the beauty of it all, is that we are all included in that crowd of the tax collectors and the sinners. I see you there and you see me there. And we're being transformed by being in the presence of Jesus Christ. And he's invited us into the best party that's ever been. But then Jesus turns to a more somber note in verse 20. He says, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. This is Jesus' first reference, um, referencing the fact that 
he that he will actually die, and that, that this is the purpose that he came in the first place. That the bridegroom will be taken away, then the mourning will come, and the grief will come, and the fasting will come. And as we see later in Mark's account, a significant uh, section of Mark's account is focused on Jesus' suffering, on, on Jesus' sacrifice, on his death. But that time is not now. The bridegroom is with them. They should rejoice. And I would suggest, because we aren't there, right? We aren't there. We aren't in this room with Jesus. You know, we aren't the first listeners to him. We are here in 2018. So what should our mood be? Should we be fasting because Jesus he died? Or should we be rejoicing? And I would suggest to us that our default mode here in 2018 is that we're to celebrate, is that we're to rejoice. Uh, because Christ lives in us, you know, because we have the bridegroom with us. But that's not to say that we should never fast or mourn. We read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, how we should fast. Jesus tells us how we should fast um, and, and we should mourn because of the sin in our lives and the way that we hurt Jesus through our, our actions and our attitudes. But what I am saying is that our basic attitude should be one of rejoicing, um, one of happiness, because sin is no longer the most important thing about us anymore. Our sin is not what really defines us. Being in Christ is what really defines us. And that should cause us to rejoice because Jesus is with us. And that means that Jesus enjoys spending time with you. Jesus enjoys spending time with me. He loves our company. And for some of you, that makes you sit up and think, surely Jesus doesn't enjoy being with me. But what I'm telling you is that Jesus enjoys being with you. He enjoys spending time with you. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says this, um, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? If so, this is the most important thing about you. The new creation has come and the old has gone. He or she, this old creation, he or she is finished with. Just as there's no longer is that little acorn. Now, surely there might be those times where the old you rears his or her head, but that's no longer you. Who you are is hidden with Christ. You are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ then from what I see in 2 Corinthians 5 is that the most pressing thing on your agenda, the, the number one thing on your list should be for you to ask, how can I be in Christ? How can I get to that place? How can I know that uh, wonder of knowing the bridegroom with me? So what Christ is saying here is that he's bringing in this new era of feasting and not fasting because he, the bridegroom, is with us. He also shows us something really powerful about how we should understand and enjoy the uh, our Sabbath. Let's turn to verse 23 of Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Um one one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some some heads of grain. The Pharisees 
said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and, and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the party's over, over in Levi's house. And sometime later, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields. And as their hands run, run along the heads of the grain, they rip some off and they start to eat them. Now, I think at some point Jesus should have taken out a restraining order against yeah, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees because they literally won't leave him alone. Um, I mean, just in this chapter, just in chapter two, we have seen that they are, that, that they are there when he heals the paralytic. Then they are there at this party at Levi's house. And now they're trailing Jesus and his entourage through the grain fields, presumably trying to see if they're able to catch him out. Uh, so they've already accused him of, um, of, of saying that he is God because he can heal sins. Um, and, and that's only something which, which God's able to do. And they've also accused him of partying with sinful people. And so they're saying, well, if you think you're God, then you shouldn't be partying with sinful people. And now they're accusing him and his followers of working on the Sabbath. They say, look at him. That rabbi and the disciples, there they are again, harvesting on the Sabbath. You see, what these teachers of the law had come to do is they'd come to to to, um, uh, to a very strict interpretation of Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 says this. Um, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, your animals or any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the Sabbath, seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So on the seventh day you should not do any work. And what they're saying is that when you rip off those heads of grain that you're harvesting, that you're working, this is wrong. But what they didn't remember, or they maybe conveniently stopped remembering, was uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, which says this. Um, Deuteronomy 23. Oh, no. Yeah. Here we go. Uh, yeah. Deuteronomy 23, 25, which says this. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. Okay, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. So even according to Old Testament law, uh, what the disciples were doing, um, they, they could have argued that what they were doing was legitimate, but... Jesus didn't respond by quoting Deuteronomy 23.25. Instead, what he responded was by quoting 1 Samuel chapter 21, which is, the, which is the account of David. When he was on the lamb, he was on the run, and he, and he headed over to this place called Nob, where he asked the priest for bread. And the priest responded by saying this, 
I don't have any bread because the bakery is not open yet. But what I do have is yesterday's sacred bread, the holy bread. Now, now this bread that he offered them was, was part of the Old Testament uh, system of worship and sacrifice. And, uh, and according to Le- Leviticus 24 verse 9, only the priests were supposed to eat this. Um, it says in, in that verse, it belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat it in a holy place. This is referring to this bread, for it is the holiest portion for him from the fire offerings to the Lord. This is a permanent rule. It's saying that only the priests can eat this, no one else. This is a permanent rule. There is no ending on this rule. But, but this priest later on, he says to David, you can have it. As long as you're ritually clean, as long as you haven't had sex with anyone. And so then David says that while he's on the run for his life, so sex is the furthest thing from his mind at that moment in time. And then the priest says, okay, you can have it. And then David and his men have a bit of a high-carb feast. But here's the thing. That priest should not have done what he did. That was not allowed. God's law clearly said that this priest, that this bread was only for the priests. And yet here he is handing this holy bread off to a bunch of renegade rebels. And so I think Jesus' point in quoting this is saying that, look, that priest was breaking a clear rule of God. And yet, and yet there, and, and there it is recorded in the scripture for you to read and me to read. And yet here am I and my disciples and all that we're breaking is your ultra strict interpretation of one of God's rules. And in fact, we have good scriptural evidence that what we're doing is okay. What he's saying is that, look, the life and death need of David and his men trumped the need to keep that bread set apart for God's purposes. He's saying that the whole point of of the sacrificial system was to enable sinful people to have a meaningful relationship with the Holy God. This system was there to serve the people's needs of being with God. Jesus is saying that the system was there to serve the people. The bread was there to serve the people. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, because he draws that link, he's saying that in the same way, the Sabbath is there to draw people closer to God, is to invite them into a trusting relationship with him where they can work for six days and then they rest and then they trust God that he's going to provide for them. This is a day when when they can take this this off-ramp, off the rat race, in order to be with God and with their loved ones. This, what, what Jesus is saying is that this rule and the commandment was there to serve the people. But the teachers of the law and the Pharisees had it backwards. They believed that the people were there to serve the rule. They were of the mindset that if God's people broke the Sabbath, then that would make God mad. So let's put in all these extra laws and rules and bylaws so we don't accidentally break the Sabbath. But Jesus knew that they were missing the point. It wasn't about let's not break the Sabbath or else God gets mad. It's about let's keep the Sabbath because God in his infinite wisdom knows that we need it. We need it in order to be the people that he's calling us to be. We need it to allow ourselves time to breathe and to be with him and to rest and to enjoy his presence and each other's presence. This is why Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
He's inviting the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, he's inviting us into a generous interpretation of what Sabbath means, one in which we can sigh and exhale and stop and breathe and know that God has it all in control. And then I love this last sentence uh, in Mark chapter 2. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I think what he's saying here is, look, teachers of the law, I invented the Sabbath. This is my idea. I was there with the Father and the Spirit when we were talking it over and trying to figure out ways that we could draw draw people to ourselves and to show them that they needed a life-giving relationship with them. And one of the things that we came up with, the Father and the Spirit and I, was the idea of a day of rest, of trusting God. It was my idea, so please, so I'm sorry if my interpretation of my own rule leaves room for my disciples snapping heads off grain and eating them. I'm sorry. What Jesus is saying is that the Pharisees aren't the lords of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So, so, so the Pharisees aren't the ones who get to make the rules. This is Jesus' right as the Lord of the Sabbath. Right at the beginning of this message, I shared that, that planned obsolescence is the practice of designing something with a limited useful life which means it will become obsolete, no longer functional or useful after a certain period of time. And so today, we don't come to God through a rigorous fulfilling of the law. Instead, we come to God through Jesus, uh, who fulfilled the law perfectly for us. This is God's planned obsolescence. We don't come to God today by atoning for our own sins. Instead, we come to God trusting that Jesus paid the full price for us. We come in faith. This is God's planned obsolescence. We, do, we don't come to God trying to earn our own salvation. Instead, we, we come to him knowing that Jesus paid it all for us, that he earned it for us. This is God's planned obsolescence. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is starting to show his hand more and more. He showed, he's, he's said that he's the bridegroom that brings joy. He said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And what he's saying here is that he's the bringer in of a new era. Just, uh, he's bringing, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, just as an oak tree is the fulfillment of an acorn. The acorn no longer exists as an acorn. Instead, it's grown into a beautiful oak tree. And so today, to finish this sermon, I would like to say to you this, that the Sabbath was made for you, not you for the Sabbath. And I would like to add this as well, that fasting was made for you, not you for fasting. And this this does not mean that we don't do them. But, and it's not saying that we should replace it with some kind of vague spirituality um, that has no rules. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what the text is saying, and that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that fasting and the Sabbath are means of grace, which means that as we do them in faith, we, we get to experience more of God's grace and favor and love than we would be able to do if we didn't do them. 
One, one, one author says this about means of grace. He says that these are activities which are undertaken to make us capable of receiving more of his life and power without harm to ourselves or others. So fasting, it's good. Just, just as long as we do it with the right attitude. Not so we can check it off a list, but to let our hunger for God drive us to seek Him first. So even going so far as going without food to focus solely on Him and keeping the Sabbath. It's good as long as we do it in the right attitude. Not to earn brownie points with God, but to enjoy the adventure of radically trusting Him that He will meet our needs, even if we're not working. And so today, we're not able to physically walk in the grain fields with Christ, even though I love, even though I would love to. But over this long weekend, we can enjoy the pleasure of Jesus' company as we enjoy the pleasure of each other's company. Because Jesus is the partying bridegroom. Jesus is our new wine. Jesus is our new robe. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is for us. So let's use it and enjoy it. So my my encouragement for you is that as you leave here, as you go to your cottage, wherever you go, is that you bring your Bible with you. You go for walks in the woods, around the lake. That you're with Christ and that you let him speak to you. That you learn to rest in his presence. That you go for walks with him through your own grain fields if you have them. And that you take that time with Jesus who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let me close with some of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11 um, from the message paraphrase. Which I think perfectly encapsulates what we've been hearing today. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. If you keep company with me, you'll learn how to live freely and lightly.